Toward the end of his life, Jacob said, my years have been few and difficult. Most of that was his fault. When you read the story of Jacob, you're barely a chapter into his life, and he's already on your nerves. He's clever, deceptive, manipulative, argumentative, opportunistic, disloyal. And that's all in the first 20 years. And then from there, his life gets even more complicated. But if you remember that all the while Jacob is these things, he is also chosen by God. Right about the time you want to disavow yourself of him, and distance yourself, you start to remember that Jacob is not really just a person. He is a type of person. He is, in fact, the people of God. He is all of those things I said, and at the same time, he is chosen by God. So you have this divided heart, this war within a man or a woman trying to live up to their calling, trying to, to, to get what God has for them, and all the while they do it, they're ruining their own chances. So the question I have for you this morning is what has God promised you? And what are you doing to keep from getting it? Jacob is one of two. It's Esau and Jacob. And I want to tell his story, if I can, in three different scenes, three different periods where God appeared to him. A few moments ago, Ethan prayed that God would find us in each space. And so if you'll let me, I want to divide his life into three spaces because these spaces represent for me a season maybe in your life, in the way that God is coming to you this morning. You can learn lots of things about God in classes and in sermons like this one. But the one who can teach you the most about God is God himself. And he doesn't do this in classes or in sermons. He does this in ordinary places in life when he shows up. And then by discerning what he is doing and putting things together, you begin to get a picture of God that is bigger and sometimes different than the one you had. The word Jacob, the name Jacob means grabber, clutcher, grasper, one who claws, one who climbs the ladder. He's the second born who wants to be first. And what he doesn't know is that before he was born, his mother had a dream and God appeared and said to her, inside of your womb, are two children, not one. They represent two nations. These nations coming from you will move in opposite directions. And the second will be the first. 
the weaker will be the stronger. And so when Jacob is born, he comes out second, grasping the heel of his brother. And when his mother sees it, she names him grabber, grasper, clutcher. It's a play on words. It can mean deceiver. What he doesn't know is that before he was born, he's already favored. He's already chosen. God has already put all of the steps in motion. And so without that knowledge, he starts out a life clutching for things he already has. Within the first few years of his life, his brother, his older brother, is out in the field. He comes busting into the house, starving one day, and says, give me some of the stew that you've made. I'm about ready to die. Jacob says, only in exchange for the birthright. A birthright in those days is not just a piece of paper. It's a legal and a social position. So Jacob already starts to barter the stew for the birthright. Well, the brother, without thinking, says, look, if I'm not alive, it's not going to matter. So he trades him the birthright on oath for the stew. A few years later, with the help of his mother, Jacob dresses up in his older brother's clothes, brings his father, who is now blind, a plate of food made just the way he likes it. And he gives the food to his father in exchange for the blessing. The father says, how did you get this food so quickly? Jacob says, the Lord, your God, gave me success. The father eats the food gives Jacob the blessing, and just as he finishes, Esau comes running into the house, realizing that the blessing has now been given to his younger brother. He will never have it himself. He lets out a loud and bitter cry, and before the day is over, he swears to himself that he will not rest until he has killed his younger brother. Jacob hears of this, And he starts running away from home. And while he is running, he stops for the night, lays his head on a stone, drifts into a sleep. And God appears to Jacob for the first time in a dream. And this is what he says. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac, And I will not rest until I give to you and your descendants all of this land where you're lying. And all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. If you play that in slow motion, it is the exact promise God made to his granddaddy, Abraham. It's a promise of presence, I will be with you, a promise of favor, 
I will bless you. It's a promise of increase. Whatever you are doing will increase and become great. And it's a promise of purpose. The entire world will be blessed through you. This promise will start to change Jacob's life. It is the first time God appears. Can I pause for a moment? The most striking thing about this scene is that up to this moment, Jacob has hardly noticed God at all. He's a third generation follower of God. And he's never mentioned his name except in passing. And even then, it wasn't his God. It was his daddy's. The Lord, your God, has given me success. On this night, Jacob discovers that his life from now on will no longer be flat and one-dimensional. There will always be two things happening. There will be the thing he was working on himself, and there will be the thing that God is doing invisibly and quietly his entire life. Those two narratives will be played out from now until the end of his life. He will be ambitious. He will work hard. He will be clever, undermining at times, but God will always be working alongside of him to keep a promise he didn't deserve. I think in this first scene of the children of religious parents in this home, in this church, and I wonder how many of us, like Jacob, have been living off the fumes of our parents and our grandparents because we have yet to have our own encounter with God. I wonder how many of us, like Jacob, in our ambition, have run from one thing to the next tipping over relationships, creating collateral damage, avoiding our enemies, taking advantage of every opportunity as if God had never promised us anything. And then, smack dab in the middle of all of our overwork, God appears and says, all of your success will be because I have blessed you. I don't know who I'm speaking to at this place. But I know that some of you work really hard. And you get partway through your life and you confuse your success with the sum of your work. And it's here at Bethel, house of God, that God visits you and transforms your ordinary space into his house. 
and God makes a promise to you that you do not deserve. And from this day forward, your life is set. But you will continue to clasp and claw and clutch and climb and prove yourself to get something you already have. That's a lot of us. What does God want from you in this stage? I think he wants you to say, surely God is in my life and I'm not aware of it. And maybe he just wants you to say thank you. Maybe that's all you do here. You just pause and acknowledge the fact that everything you have so far has come from the hand of God. You have good explanations for all of it, but it has come from the hand of God. What you have is more than the sum of everything you have done. Can he just hear you say, thank you. Well, you would think that a vision like this would change a person's life. You'd be surprised what this vision won't fix. Jacob, running away from his brother, runs to his uncle Laban. Laban has a couple daughters. Jacob falls in love with one of them. His father says, I'll give her to you in marriage if you work for seven years. And so he starts working for seven years. And at the end of the seven years, just before the wedding, daddy switches the brides. Mm. So all the while he falls in love with one He marries the other. Then he ends up marrying the one. But the other is having all the babies. And the one can't have them. And so there begins in Jacob's life this rivalry between two wives. And here in slow motion, played out before his eyes, is Jacob's own story The deceiver is deceived. And the one who is at war with his brother is now married to that war. It's funny, isn't it? When God begins to transform a person, he continuously subjects that person into situations that reveal them to themselves. And we imagine ourselves to be noble only because we know how much we hate deception in other people. We don't realize that what we have in the situation before us is a mirror reflecting the nature of our own troubled lives. What bothers us about them might bother God about us. It's a hard 20 years. 
But now with these 12 sons starting to grow and get stronger and more capable, they take over Laban's farm. Everything they do turns to gold. They get very, very productive and it starts to flourish. Jacob wants to leave with his family. Laban says, no, no, everything you're doing is really going well. I'll pay you anything you want if you stay. Jacob says, I'll stay on one grounds, that in running the farm, you let me choose which of the animals are mine. I'll just choose a few, and then you can have the rest. Laban agrees. And Jacob, very cleverly, still living down to his name, arranges it so the weak animals belong to Laban and the strong ones belong to him. He gets rich, and then he gets richer. And then Laban's boys notice, and they come after him. Jacob, now running from his brother, runs again, this time from an angry father-in-law. While his father-in-law is chasing him one night, the Lord intervenes and says to him, tomorrow you'll catch him, and you better not lay a hand on him. He's mine. Here is where the reader is baffled by the story. You can't understand how someone who is so crooked can be so favored and blessed. How does someone who treats people like that get all of this? Laban catches up with Jacob, and instead of killing him, they make a covenant. Laban says, in exchange for me not coming across this line and taking your head off, that's a very rough translation, you will treat my daughters with respect and you won't marry any others. <laughs> that's a good enough deal, so he takes it. That night, Jacob lies down on this side of the Jabbok River. And while he is lying there, a man comes out of nowhere and jumps him. And he starts assaulting him. The struggle goes on the entire night. Until just before daybreak, the man who jumped him said, let me go. Presumably, he doesn't want Jacob to know who he is. Jacob won't let him go, so he strikes him in the hip and dislocates it. Jacob falls as the man is leaving. He reaches out and tackles the man one more time and says, I won't let you go until you bless me. The man says, what is your name? There's a pause. Jacob says, my name is, he deceives. 
It's a name he's been running from since the very beginning. The man wrestling with him says, tonight your name is no longer Jacob. He deceives. Your name is Israel. He struggles. He wrestles. He fights. And he overcomes. Jacob names the place Peniel, face of God. I have fought with God and I've survived. There are people here this morning still fighting with God. It's not always your fault. You haven't done anything wrong, maybe. But one day when you were minding your own business, it seems to you as if God himself jumped you and assaulted you. And now he's injured you. And you've started to wonder with all this wrestling going on in your soul if that denies the fact that you're a Christian, that you're a follower of God. Listen to me. It might be exactly the opposite. The identity of an Israelite is one who fights and wrestles with God. It is not one who has figured everything out. It is one who is continuously in the struggle. You must learn to wrestle with God without walking away. Everything in your culture this morning teaches you to have a mic drop moment and then to leave the scene. You cannot do this. You must stay and fight until you overcome but you must learn to complain without accusing. You must learn to be silent, to feel things deeply without expressing those things. It is not a sign of your nobility to say every thought that enters your mind. Nobility is to feel something deeply and to hold it in. Because the fight is still on. And so for some of you this morning, that's exactly where you are. You're questioning your own spiritual life. Why can't it be easier for me? Maybe you're one of him. Maybe this doesn't prove that you're a skeptic. Maybe it proves you're a saint. If you stay in the fight. You cannot leave. This could go all night. And God will not overpower you but he might leave if you let him. You must hold on until he blesses. 
people look at me. He always blesses. You all right? Last scene. Jacob, now fortified by the deal he has made with Laban, decides that it's time to reconcile with his brother. He hears his brothers coming for him, and he figures it can only get worse. And so he sends an entourage of servants in front of him, each one of them with gifts, trying to buy his brother's favor. What he doesn't know is that before he started, the God who called him with a promise and the God who changed his name has changed his brother's heart. So when he sees him, his brother runs after Jacob, throws his arm around him. The two begin to weep, and the brothers are reconciled. It's almost a happy ending until the ending. Some years later, when Joseph is born and sent into Egypt, we are told in Genesis 37 that the story of Joseph is actually the story of Jacob. Joseph is how God will fulfill the dream if Jacob can get out of his own way. Now in Egypt, Joseph sends word to his daddy, pack everything you have and move to Egypt or you will die. The boys pack up everything and daddy starts this journey from Canaan, the land he was promised, to Egypt, the last place a Hebrew would go. Egypt is the land of sorcery and dark magic. Nearly everything the Egyptians do, the Hebrews abhor. Now God, through circumstances beyond anyone's control, has forced Jacob, Israel, the people of God, to go to a place they don't want to go. There in a land called Beersheba, Jacob stops for the night and he makes an altar. We don't know why he made an altar. I suspect he was praying to the only God he knew that he would find protection and favor. But what he must have wondered is how will this God fare in a land that is not Canaan? How will he stack up against Pharaoh who thinks he's God? What match is Yahweh for black magic? So he stops, makes an altar, consecrates himself, hoping for the best, and God shows up one more time. And this time he says, don't be afraid to go. 
for I will make you into a great nation in the place you're avoiding. And I will go with you. And I won't quit until I bring you back. Two months ago, I sat in the dimly lit corner of a Catholic retreat center on the second day of a board retreat. I knew the day in front of me was we were trying to finish up the projections for the next five years. We were trying to figure out how College Church was going to fare in those next three to five years. And you guys... I was nervous because the night before, everything that the board had described about our culture was frightening. It was more permissive. It was less religious. People, even Christians, are more secular. They're no longer attending. A third of the people that were regular attenders have still Never been back, either online or in person. Yesterday I read 27% of them say, we don't foresee a day when I come back. These are different days, and I was worried. I opened the scripture to Genesis 46, and this is what I read. Don't be afraid to go forward to the land you don't want to go. For I will do something great in the place you're avoiding. And I will go with you. And I will not stop until I finish the promise. If you're in higher education this morning, you feel the same thing, don't you? The ground is moving. The demographic pools are getting thinner. You're wondering if you're preparing a generation of students for jobs that don't exist in 10 years. You're worried about the invasion of a government that is more and more disruptive. Like me, you're standing on the border in between the land you knew and the place you don't want to go. Hear the word of the Lord. Don't be afraid to go forward, for God will do something there that he couldn't do back here. And God will go with you, and he will not stop until he completes the promise that he's made you. Some of you are caught in jobs right now that are moving. You're wondering if your job will exist once the robots have taken over. Or you're on the border between your career and your retirement. And you're wondering if the assets are going to be enough. You are fraught with worry about a future you cannot control. Forced by circumstances to go places you don't want to go. And maybe this morning what you're hearing God say is, 
Don't be afraid. I will do things there that I couldn't do before. And I will go with you and I will not stop until you are home. This morning, God has found me in each of these spaces at different seasons of my life. He's found me working too hard to accomplish something he's already given me. Trying to prove myself to be what I already am and live down a name that I don't want. And God has appeared to me in the past and said, I'm making you a promise you don't deserve. For now, all I want is praise. Like some of you, I've been in dark nights of the soul where I was in a fight. And not only was God silent in those seasons, I had the sense he was the one who jumped me. I didn't know he was fighting to preserve the person that I am. So I didn't lose it. Is that you? Are you still fighting this morning? Or are you on the border between a place too familiar and a place you don't want to go? And God will find you and make another promise.